Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This week on The Insiders, he's a California billionaire who spent tens of millions of dollars to push the country to get behind the idea of impeaching President Trump. Tom Steyer joins us on how he looks at what's happened so far and what he thinks of the idea to get rich people like himself to pay more taxes. Plus, Iowa's first gentleman on the holidays. Kevin Reynolds gives us an inside look at how the first couple gets ready for Christmas. And in the Insider's Quick Six, what 90 minutes with a group of Iowans undecided about the Iowa caucuses told us. Headquarters, this is the Insiders with Dave Price. Welcome to The Insiders. Tom Steyer made his fortune as a hedge fund manager. He's been spending tens of millions of dollars these days trying to convince you and members of Congress to take that rare step of making President Donald Trump only the third president in history to get impeached. Now, when Steyer started this push, he made the case that the president should get impeached because the president was profiting from foreign governments when they stay at his properties across the world. Now, the impeachment case ended up being whether the president pressured Ukraine into investigating former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter instead. I asked Steyer, the Democratic presidential candidate, about how this has all played out. The pattern that I said two years ago was in place, has continued, and this is a perfect example of it. As the president has said and the Republicans, some Republicans have said, this is really just Democrats trying to throw out the 2016 election, go against the will of the people who elected him. That is 100% false. This is a question of patriotism. This is a question of are we going to actually stand up for what's right? Are we going to oppose what's wrong at the heart of our system? Or are we going to play partisan politics? This, this is not about partisan politics. This is about protecting the system of democracy and the Constitution itself. What, what, will, this, what will this process be like for the American people? Look, I think we're going to get a chance to see, and we've got started to get a chance, exactly what happened. Now, it's obvious that the distinction that people have drawn between this and what happened with President Nixon and the Watergate hearings was that Mr. Trump has not allowed anyone to go testify in front of Congress from his administration. He is actually, in, in being accused of obstructing justice, he's obstructing justice. I mean, it's, it sounds funny and ironic. But it's actually not funny that what we're seeing is a president who thinks that he's above the law and he can simply say, no, I'm not going to follow the rules. This tribalism that we seem to have across our country, at least in some aspects, what if this goes through where the Democrats in the House impeach him, but it goes to the Republican-led Senate and they decide not to convict him in the trial there? Then where are we? Well, Dave... This has always been my point, which is what really matters are the people of the United States. So for every Senate Republican, they're going to have to ask themselves, what are my constituents? What do the people in my state think about this? And that's why it's so important that it be on TV and that people get a chance to see directly, because they're going to wear that vote for the rest of their lives. When they, everybody's going to understand when they're up for re-election where they stood on this and why. 
And so it's a really important vote for them personally. And that's why I've said the court, the court that matters is the court of public opinion, because Americans are going to have an opinion about this vote. And that opinion is not going to change. So they're going to wear this, really, every, every day for the rest of their lives. Later this month is the next presidential debate, nationally televised presidential debate. As you well know, some of your competitors don't think it's fair that you've used some of your personal money to help you boost your standing in the polls. They don't think that's right. Look, I've said from the beginning, I've said two things from the beginning. One, my, the la what I have done over the last 10 plus years is when I've seen something really wrong, I've tried to work as hard as I can personally put in all my time all my effort and money to to try and make it happen. And if you look at this race, as far as I'm concerned, what has determined how people have done is whether you have a message that resonates with Democratic primary voters, period. And I think for their people who have, for the people who have done well, that's what's happened. Is that, and I think that is what is going to continue to make the difference here. Are you saying something important and differential? And do people trust you? To act on it. I, you know, I've been saying for the whole time, we have a broken government, corporations have bought it, I've spent a decade standing up for individual Americans, coalitions of Americans, and fighting those corporations and beating them. If you think that's the problem, I'm the person with the history to solve it. I have, my son is nine, and the way he was introduced to you is that he's on YouTube all the time, and when he goes to watch his videos, there's the Tom <laughs> Steyer right? So for... As I've talked to some of these other candidates the last couple of weeks about this, they have said that this just shows that the way we have money involved in politics just isn't the right way to go. Look, I think we have to reform this system. But to me, the whole question here is, do you have a message that people can respond to and hear? And, and you know, that is, I think we're at a point in this race where things are getting very, very serious, Dave. We're getting, you know, we're 59 days out from the Iowa caucuses. And, the, and I think people are getting to the point of we realize, oh, my goodness, we're going to have to come up with a candidate. We're going to have to come up with a candidate who can beat Mr. Trump, who can then run the economy in a responsible fashion and restore justice to the United States. For people who followed you, they remember those need to impeach ads early on, and then they remember when I covered you in downtown Des Moines where you had the news conference to say, I'm not running. Yeah. And uh, here you are sitting next to us running. Uh, so walk us through the thinking the, there. Yeah, yeah, as you navigated Look, through that. I thought that for sure this was going to work out because there were so many people running. And I've always said my calculus on what to do is what I can, where I can make the most positive differential impact. And in June, I decided, actually, I don't think anyone's really leveling with the American people. The issues to me are we have a broken government. It's not a question exactly of which progressive policy. I think the people on that stage all want pretty much the same things. They may want to get to them differently, and those differences are important. But the real question is, how are we going to get any of those things to actually happen? These aren't new problems. And secondly, we're going to have to deal with our climate crisis. I've said my number one priority. I'm the only person running who's saying climate, number one priority, state of emergency. We have to do it. We can do it, and we can do it in a way that rebuilds and reimagines America, that restores jobs, that re rebuilds the middle class, that cleans up our air and water, particularly in low-income communities, but in black and brown communities across this country. So we have to do that. And I wasn't hearing anyone really step up on what I think 
are the biggest issues facing Americans and that we've got to call out and that we've got to solve, address and solve. Uh, your career was in, was in business. So coming at this, and you're a, you haven't been in elected office before. So coming at this as a business guy, mm -hmm. how do you think others in business look at when they hear these policies about climate change and the impact on businesses, what they would have to change? And obviously on your side, especially we're hearing about the changes in the tax system. People are doing it different ways, but most everybody wants to raise taxes to some degree for people, uh, whether it's for big corporations or the wealthy, whatever it is. So come or, at both. It, or, or both, right. So come at it from the business side. How do you make that, how do you personally hear those conversations yeah. and how do you sell that? Well, there's no doubt that what I'm talking about, which is a wealth tax, which I've been talking about for more than a year, long before I was running for president. And is president. that practical? How does that thing, how does that happen? I mean, it, it, you'd have to have a big change, but it's, I think it's really important, honestly. So the government would come to you and say, appraise all your stuff? Yeah, well, they do it right now with real estate. I mean, that's what, a, you know, they do it on real estate holdings. That's how they pay for it. So a that, lot of you things. think it's practical? I it do. Be done? I do. I, th I think a wealth tax, I'd undo the tax breaks that have gone to the richest Americans, the biggest corporations. So you're asking me how businesses respond. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm, talk I'm gonna talk about more stuff that we haven't released yet in terms of how to make this tax code much fairer and actually progressive as opposed to the way it is. I think two things. One, they don't like it. Of course they don't like it because they realize that they've been getting this gigantic unfair break and they like that. And so anybody who addresses that, they don't like. But I think the other thing that's true is this. They know that I'm a responsible person. They know that I'm started a business from nothing and built it you know, into a big international business. So they know that in my heart, we, that, I know, that I know that we need a competitive, dynamic, innovative private sector, that I'm saying I'll change the rules they play by. I won't let them write the rules. But I, in fact, I understand that that is important for America, that we keep but growing. They shouldn't and fear jobs. you as president. They should know darn well that I'm gonna change the tax code they should know darn well that they're, gonna, they're not going to be able to have their way with Washington anymore. They should know darn well that the government of the United States is going to re represent the people and not them anymore. Absolutely. And they don't like that. But they should also know that I understand that within that context, I'm not someone who wants to get away with the private sector. I know we need a dynamic private sector. I know we need to be competitive around the world. Of course I know that. But, and, and that's different. I mean, I'm someone who they have to know in their heart of hearts is going to depend on the private sector to produce growth. But it, the time for them, unchecked capitalism, the way it's been, where they write the rules is over as far as I'm concerned. Those are Tom Steyer's issues. Up next, our undecided Iowans find out what the deciders want people talking about. We wanted to know what issues are most important to the undecided Iowans. So this week we checked back with a group of nine Iowans who have committed to caucus for a Democratic presidential candidate but don't yet know which one. We sat down with them to listen to the issues they want addressed by the next president. Healthcare. It's a fifth Healthcare. of our economy, and yet we have worse outcomes than virtually every other advanced industrialized country. I mean, it's sometimes we're quite embarrassing. Sometimes I feel like they argue about things that just don't really matter. I mean, the, the important thing is that we get health care for everyone. How we get there, I don't really care. Climate change, it's a huge, mm. huge concern because, you know, in a few hundred years, none of the rest of it might not matter if we don't address that. Education, um, 
tech support, taking people from 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 industrialized uh, careers into more more technological. We're in the technological age. Income inequality, health insurance, environment, prison reform, and immigration. Talked about a little bit between some of the candidates, but I think prison reform, that companies profit off the incarceration of people. The, the private prison system is just, it's unfathomable to me. This is one that everybody gives token comment, oh yes, I support education, oh yes, I'll be, and that's the end of it. Yep. And there's really no substantive plan or program put forward that helps us con confront what is, I think, a serious crisis. If I was to really listen for something that was very important, that would have a long-term play, that would be, uh, you know, important to me would be that education piece. I don't hear enough about gun control, mm -hmm. and it seems like people are almost afraid to talk about it. I some talk about foreign policy. I think Biden's about the only one that's actually kind of addressed that, although in very oblique terms, though. So when I say our issues, I mean the majority of Americans, the people who know what a disconnect notice looks like, you know, the people yeah. who realize that if their car goes down between now and next May, <laughs> they, they don't have, if it's more than a couple hundred, it better not be more than an alternator because then they don't have it. That's why I think that the issues are extremely important to me because the issues are what's going to change the narrative of the country. Now, our deciders never mention nuclear weapons, but former U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz wants you and everybody else thinking more about the threat of nuclear war. Here we are working uh, to try to get the kinds of dialogues going, uh, the kinds of uh, processes going uh, that quite simply reduce the risks of weapons of mass destruction that can have uh, catastrophic consequences. As you assess the globe, where do you see our biggest threat? Well, number one, you, gotta, you have to start with Russia in the sense that it's simple uh, arithmetic. Uh, the United States and Russia have something like 92% of the world's nuclear weapons. Uh, and so if you want to talk existential threat, uh, that is clearly the relationship that we need to manage. Right now, it's pretty dysfunctional in general. And one of our messages is, hey, look, in the Cold War, we in the Soviet Union had lots and lots of problems. It didn't prevent us from being focused as well on the existential threat of nuclear weapons with the arms control agreements that President Reagan reached, for example, in that time period. Uh, and now we have unfortunately lost that level of focus on our responsibility to minimize the risks to societies and the world uh, of the use of, nu of nuclear weapons. You served in the Obama administration, so now in a sense you're outside looking in at the Trump administration. Could you make the argument that it is a positive thing when it comes to nu nuclear weapons that this president seems to view the leader of Russia as an ally rather than an adversary like we have for a long time? Well, first, David, I do want to make clear that I'm not, be, I'm not here to talk about individual candidates or parties, et cetera. Uh, but the issue of dialogue uh, with Russia uh, is absolutely essential. So in our current situation, I would say, is that uh, there is actually a lack of political space to carry on the professional discussions that we need. In the Cold War, it was really the ongoing, I mean, clearly the president's discussing was important, but what was important was underneath that, you had military to military discussions going on, diplomat to diplomat discussions going on. It was about avoiding crisis, crisis management if one was emerging. 
And now those mechanisms, we fear, uh, have atrophied in the, cur in the current situation, uh, and that can lead to bad mistakes being made, uh, particularly when we have so many other challenges in our relationship with, with Russia. So how seriously should we take North Korea? Right. So North Korea is somewhere in the tens of, of weapons. Uh, I, I personally would not score North Korea as, a, as an existential threat to our homeland. However, they pose a major risk uh, to our forces uh, deployed uh, in, the, uh, in Asia, uh, to our allies, uh, South Korea and Japan in particular. Uh, and they could be a flashpoint for what would be a much bigger conflagration in that area. Don't forget, we also have China. We have actually Russia with a small border uh, as well. Uh, so it's one of those regional situations that has to be addressed. So uh, we, we feel that uh, addressing in a step-by-step -step way uh, the denuclearization over, frankly, a long period of time of North Korea is absolutely essential. Frankly, we endorse uh, the idea of opening up those discussions uh, with North Korea, but opening them up does n is not helpful if it's not followed up by a very systematic, structured, professional uh, negotiation, uh, which, which has to have probably a multi-administration horizon. So are, are we protected? Does the, is the United States set up well enough that we can fend off any of these things if they come flying through the air at us? Well, obviously, we have constructed some missile defenses uh, which could certainly protect us against, uh, let's say, a missile or two. Uh, clearly, in, uh, if there were to be uh, a, you know, a nuclear Pearl Harbor, mm -hmm. uh, we clearly don't have those defenses, uh, and, and there it's the deterrence uh, against that threat. We must be sure uh, to, re to retain uh, as, does, as does Russia, uh, a retaliatory possibility uh, to make sure that, uh, that uh, we can deter attack. What should you, and in this case, what should we, be asking these candidates as they come to town to try to push them on this topic? Well, I mean, one very straightforward uh, first question is, uh, what are we going to do about New START? Uh, what are we going to do about maintaining arms control? Uh, and it's probably important to understand that that a treaty like New START, it's not just about capping the number of weapons and... And that's up and, in 21? And that will expire in February 21, uh, 2021, two weeks after the, uh, the next administration takes office. So the Secretary is not hearing many people talk about nuclear weapons. We do know people, a lot of people, are thinking about Christmas. Next, we get an insider's take on how Iowa's governor gets ready for the Christmas by the man who knows her better than anybody else, the first gentleman. One of the biggest perks about serving as Iowa's governor is living in the historic Terrace Hill in Des Moines. This time of year, that place is full of trees, ornaments, and other holiday displays for Governor Kim Reynolds and her family. Iowa's first gentleman took us inside there and shared how the Reynolds family gets ready for Christmas. Kim just really likes live trees. Kim does the, the, the decorating. Uh, I just get the trees in the stands and set in place, and she does the decorating.
We've been watching Hallmark movies for the last month, it seems like. <laughs> I think we've seen about all of them. Santa's coming to town! Santa! We watched Elf the um, uh, night before last. That's one of my favorites. Thank you, Honor, and a Merry Christmas to you. And a Merry Christmas to you. And then last night, we probably watched Kim's favorite, which was um, Miracle on 34th Street. It, it was on, so we watched it. Ready for Christmas. Next, what we've learned from the nine Iowans who've let us ask them a whole lot of questions about what they need to hear, see, and feel before they commit to a candidate on caucus night. Time now for the Insider's Quick Six. Here is what we have learned so far from the Deciders, our group of nine undecideds who are trying to figure out which Democrats to support on caucus night. Here's what we know. One, it's not easy. Campaigns can sometimes forget this, that Iowans have families and jobs and other responsibilities that limit their time to fully vet, especially when you're talking about vetting 15 different Democrats running for president. These decided say they can feel overwhelmed with the intensity of the campaigning. Two, our decideds did not have one issue that dominated their thinking these days. Affordable health care might be the most mentioned one, but it is definitely not the only one that is prominent in their thinking. Three, our decided think electability is important in choosing a candidate for caucus night. However, they find it difficult to explain and then to agree on what makes somebody the most electable. Four, age didn't matter to them. So 70-something candidates like Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, they have an added hurdle here with some of the decideds, and that also includes the 73-year-old president, Donald Trump. Five. Speaking of the president, the Decideds acknowledge how effective the president is at communicating with his supporters. One of his books was titled The Art of the Deal, but as a politician, he definitely has the art of the message. Finally, a prediction. Of our nine undecideds, just one had her short list of choices down to two, but the next time we meet with this group, we predict the others will have also moved to settling down on that final choice. That short list is getting shorter. Thanks for joining us on The Insiders.